Well, good morning again. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 8. If you want to turn there in your own Bibles, or if you have your smartphones, you can pull out the ESV. It has a great app that I would highly recommend. It's also printed for you on page uh, 9. And boys and girls, you have your own translation there as well at the bottom of page 9. And can I just say how much it is a joy, isn't it, after so long of not being together in worship? Isn't it a joy to be back together and hear other people singing? I just love it. And, and I also just want to say that I love the sounds of children in worship. It is very discouraging when it's completely dead quiet out there. And I mean that. So young parents of young children, I release you from the stress and fear you have right now. We love it. They can make noise. It's fine. That's why we have a microphone. No big deal. So as we're going to continue on in our series, we have been talking about kind of the main ideas of, of Sycamore, of what a church is about. There are other ways you can do it. These are not the only three things, but as we think of the Sycamore tree, we've been looking at the three big roots we have that have us just anchored in the gospel. And we looked at real hope, then we looked at rescued community, and today we're going to look at God's love, one of the big main tap roots we have. Yeah, but love is one of those words. It's so simple, and yet... It's so big, isn't it? And how do you define love? How do you get your mind wrapped around love? Well, here, here's an angle I think might help us. What, if you had it, would make your life just right, would give you peace? You see, our hopes and our dreams, those things we rest our minds on, that's what we love. Well, there's another way to look at it. Our frustrations, our despairs, what are you scared of losing? What can't you imagine life without? That's what you love. Those final moments before you're falling asleep at night, when you finally do that, that big exhale, what does your mind drift off to right before you fall asleep? It's usually your main love. See, these answers reveal what has captured our heart, what we are willing to sacrifice for, what we truly serve. And in the language of the Bible, if that's not Jesus, those things are called idols. And I remember the first time I heard a preacher use that word idol, I immediately started thinking of like National Geographic, right? Totem, fire, dancing, crazy stuff, noise. But that's not what you have to do to be idols. Our idols can be a lot more subtle and <clears throat> civilized, can't they? And so to see how insidious our idols can be, and how God's love conquers our wandering hearts, we're going to look back at this Old Testament prophet named Hosea. So who is this Hosea guy? Hosea is a minor prophet. That doesn't mean he wasn't important. That means he just wrote, wrote a smaller book as opposed to a major prophet who wrote a big book. He ministered about 700 years before Jesus. So we're in a global pandemic right now. Think about your history textbooks. Remember the Black Plague, that other pandemic that killed a third of Europe? That was about 700 years ago. So that far between us and the plague, that's as far as it was between Hosea and Jesus. And he was called to preach to a relatively prosperous country. And, a, and he was called to preach to a people who were just fully engaging in this new religious phenomenon that was sweeping across the land. It was called Baal worship, or as we like to say it here in the south, Baal. And what happened is this, is... In the ancient Near East, the land of Israel especially was a land of farmers, and you needed your crops to grow, and so you needed a fertility god, and Baal had your back. He was your guy. 
Baal had this a very tra- attractive worship style. He was the kind of God you worshipped with all your glands, let's say. He was a fertility God, and he needed to be reminded and inspired to be fertile. So, at the Baaltist church, what you would do is farmers would go and they would engage in an act of fertility, let's say, for the adults, with a cult prostitute. Baal would see it and like, oh yeah, I need to be fertile, and he would make your crops grow. As you can imagine, Baal's men's ministry was just exploding in popularity. (laughs) Parents were so excited, their young men were like eager to go to worship. And into this idolatrous mess, God calls Hosea. God had described his relationship to his people as husband and wife. Israel was God's wife, so to speak. And God says his people are cheating on him with Baal. And so he instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute, probably one of the ones from the cult. And he tells her straight up, and she does it. She will cheat on you. You will love her anyway. Because love is a verb, like breathing. You just do it. It's not something you fall into like mud. Right? So he obeys and he loves her. And Hosea's life becomes an object lesson about God's love. Because God continues to love his people, even in the face of their unfaithfulness. So, with that background in mind, would you please, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as found on the top of page 9. Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 8. This is God's word. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moon, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at times when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by that name no more. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in speech that we might know you truly. And so we ask, Lord, that you would once again open us up to your truth. Change us. Let us see more of your great love and the glory of Jesus. We ask that you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So one of the things I like to do is we're, as we're getting to know each other, I like to give you a theme for every sermon, kind of where we're going to try to go. And today, it's even when we don't love God well, He sacrificially loves us. 
Now, one of the things you can do with this theme, by the way, just give me a little second here to kind of give it a little housekeeping, is, you know, you go home and maybe you go to a restaurant or you, go, or you stay home for lunch and say, hey, how was church today? No, it's fine. It's good. Or you can say, hey, Pastor Sean said the theme for the sermon today was, and you read the theme and you go, do you think he did it? Did he get there? Did he not get there? And it kind of gives you some fodder to actually talk about God's word and worship around lunch. Just an idea. You don't have to do it. No one's going to judge you if you don't. So today... Our theme is, even when we don't love God well, He sacrificially loves us. And we don't love God well because, like that old Johnny Lee song, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. So if you had asked one of these ancient Israelites, why are you abandoning your God? Why are you walking away from the God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, who gave you this land? Why are you doing this? They would say, man, that old-fashioned stuff just is so irrelevant. It's not practical. And, and we're not abandoning all that Moses stuff. We're still going to do all that. We're just adding the Baal stuff too because it's just it's so relevant and I really feel like I'm worshiping. What's the big deal? Well, God indicates it's a big deal, starting in verse 8 where he says, basically, I gave her everything and you used it for another. I mean, look past, if, you, if that's a problem for you, look past the metaphor of traditional gender roles and see the emotion here, right? There's pain in these words. God had provided for his people, but they took his blessing and gave credit to another. Has someone ever been given credit for your work? It stinks, doesn't it? Boys and girls, have you ever done a chore without being asked? And like your sister or your brother took credit for it? Or maybe something bad happened at home and you got blamed even though you didn't do it? That stinks, doesn't it? You know what? God knows exactly what that's like. He's been there. Look with me at your verse 8. Here's what God says here. It says, My people are my wife by covenant, a wife who has not learned that I bless her with food, jewelry, and money. Instead, she says, Thank you to that idol, Baal. Isn't that sad? Can't you, can't you feel God's sadness? Like, you took my stuff and gave it away. And so, how does God respond? He takes away their blessing and pride. He goes, I gave, I'm going to take it away. And then even more, he publicly shames his people. And that's just, that's not words. That actually happened. There's this weird interplay in the text, if you look at Hosea on your own study, or just in this passage in particular. Is it Hosea and his wife that's being talked about? Is it God and Israel? Or or which one is it? And the, the Hebrew is purposely vague because it's, yes, it's both and. You're kind of supposed to walk through this weird mess because it's a weird thing, isn't it, to say that God is married to Israel? So, we, so he's trying to help them understand the reality of this. So in other parts of the book, we find out that Hosea goes to a public square, strips his wife of her pretty clothes, and shames her publicly. Now, that's shocking to us, but you've got to remember, this is a shame culture. So when you think of shame, don't think of an emotion. Don't think of a feeling. Think of an object. A good way to think about it, I'm not trying to be funny, but a good way to think about it is think of that game hot potato. Shame was the potato, and you did not want it. So you did whatever you could to get it to somebody else because it hurt, it stung, and you didn't like it. It was tangible. So in a shame culture, what you would do is you would go through this ceremony of shaming the one who brought shame onto you because in the eyes of the community, it would transfer the shame to them. Maybe you've heard about the tragedy of honor killings in our day. That's a shame culture. The person has brought shame upon someone and to relieve themselves, they kill them. 
fact, this, this happened in Dallas, Texas like 10 years ago, and they just caught one of the guys this past weekend who killed his own daughters in an honor killing because they brought shame upon him. So this still happens today with this idea that shame is tangible. So public shaming was very common, and Hosea did it to his wife, and God did it in history. Babylon, this big nation called Babylon, is going to come, and it's going to carry away the people he's talking to into exile as slaves. And then about a generation later, this other nation is going to come called Assyria. It's going to take away the rest of the people, and they are gone from history. God completely gets rid of them. And because it was his people, he is the one who's also shamed in the event. So Hosea is kind of shamed with his wife. God's kind of shamed with his people. It's this weird interplay, but God brings shame. Why would God do that? What's the big deal? You see, this is actually the original question. In the creation story, when the serpent comes and tricks Eve, the serpent basically asks her, What kind of God would deny you pleasure if he really loved you? And this section of Hosea is one of the places where there's an answer. Verse 11 tells us that God will not let his people wallow in false answers, in idols, even when it feels so good and seems so fulfilling. See, humans are hardwired to seek love, and so our Creator, he thwarts our attempts to settle for less than the real, thick, fulfilling love that only he offers here's how a good way to think about this think about trick-or-treating so trick-or-treating happens your kids come back and they have this huge pile of candy and like in our house okay for the next like two or three days the rules were kind of relaxed a little bit on candy consumption and they're allowed to have a little more candy than they normally would be okay then is it loving to continue to let them eat this ridiculous amount of candy going on and on and on I mean, there's things like, you know, diabetes and tooth decay and things. And so we make our kids ration out their candy. Is that an act of hate? No, boys and girls, it's not an act of hate. That's similar to what God is doing here. He's not going to let them be happy, even though this feels so good and they think it's good. No, this is bad. I'm not going to let you be happy in it. Here's another way to think about it if you need something more philosophically profound than candy. So back when the Soviet Union was a thing, at the height of Nikita Khrushchev's reign, a well-known atheist wrote uh, badly about his government in a private letter to a friend. And promptly, Alexander Solzhenitsyn found himself in a gulag in Siberia where he would spend over a decade. And he went in an atheist and he came out a Christian. And he said, bless you prison, bless you for being in my life, for they are lying on the rotting prison straw I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, but the maturing of the soul. See, if the God of Scripture is real, if he's truthful, then he has shown humanity how to have fulfillment, how to have peace. And so the only truly loving response to our attempts to wring love from all the wrong places is for him to thwart us, to stop us, to not let us have all the candy we want to send us to prison for 10 years like he did to Mr. Solzhenitsyn. So back to the text. Look with me at verse 13. Here's the point of all this. God says this. He says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. 
Okay, the word punish there is not quite that strong in the original. I think for the kids, we translate it as deal with. So don't let that distract you because we get so distracted. God's punishing. Instead, look at, the, look at the metaphor. What's the story that that verse tells? Israel is a wife who gets all dressed up for her lover in front of her husband. She's at the mirror putting on the shirt he got her for Valentine's Day, putting on the perfume he got her for Christmas, taking the necklace that they got for their anniversary. She puts it all on for another's benefit, completely disregarding her husband. You can sense the pain and betrayal in God's voice here. Because you don't even remember me. Did you know that God reveals himself with such emotional intensity in Scripture? He's not aloof. He's not unknowable. He's not unfeeling. Rather, the Bible shows us the Creator has this deep emotional life. Even more so, in His pain, God tells it like it is. Go back to verse 12. In verse 12, there's this interplay, and the wife says about these gifts, quote, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Notice that word wages. What kind of person calls the gifts from their lovers wages? See what God is saying here in this text. Israel is a prostitute, just like Hosea's wife. This is shocking and offensive to us. It's fighting words in their culture. So I'm supposed to be grounding us in God's love. It's one of the big roots we have as a church. And so far I've pointed out that God's going to remove Israel's comforts and blessings. He's going to publicly shame them, and he calls them prostitutes. Uh, Mommy, I don't think the new pastor is very good at his job. But see... In following this text, we've got to feel the weight of the betrayal before we can see the depth of the love and response. Because you and I, too, have gone all out for our idols in the very presence of God. Idols are anything we put our hope and our trust in that's not Jesus. Anything that brings us peace that's not Jesus. Whatever makes you feel like you matter, that you have value, if it's not Jesus, it's an idol if you call yourself a Christian. And so God thwarts our attempts to find love in all the wrong places so that we will seek love from the right place. So if you're paying attention, the text takes a twist here between verse 13 and 14. Typically, when spouses argue, the one doing most of the talking has laid out their case and they get to the emotional climax of the fight and they just let you have it, right? I don't mean physically, but like, and this is what's going to change, right? We've all been there. You don't have to nod your head. We've all been there. We know. I want to say that God's ranting, but he's the one doing most of the talking at this point. And so we expect an angry climax of judgment after verse 13. He's made his case. He's getting all worked up. God's going to let his wayward people have it. You know, this is where preachers love this. I get to pound the pulpit and talk about judgment. Let's do this. But that's not who God is. That's not what God does. I want you to feel the emotional ridiculousness of this verse. So I went to Baylor University back before Baylor had a football program that was actually, like, good. Um, when I was there in the mid to late 90s, the, the local high schools in Waco would come and play Baylor so they could be to college and feel better about themselves. It was, it was great. We loved doing that. And so, one of, and Baylor just didn't have a culture of winning. They didn't have a culture of, like, supporting football, really. I mean, they had just gotten out of the culture of wearing suits to football games outside in August in central Texas. So anyway... We would play teams, and they had all these fight songs, and the worst, the absolute worst was Texas A&M, just the, the Aggies. We just, everybody's, all oh, the Aggies. But they had all these chants, and that everybody knew that the whole stands were like, brick a brack a firecracker, sis, boom, ball, beat, Baylor, and everybody knew them. Like, the, the babies in the wombs of the moms knew these chants. And Baylor, we had this one 
One. They have a lot more now because they like figured out we have one. It's called that good old Baylor line. And it sounds a lot like Mary had a little lamb. And so they would do this you know, huge thing. And then it would be our turn as fans to cheer on our football team. And we'd be like, <clears throat> good old. and it's just ridiculous. That's not the emotional climax you want before a football game if you're going to watch something. And that's what happens in this text. It comes to this crescendo. We're getting ready. God's going to give it to him. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will romantically attract her, is what that means. I will bring her into the wilderness. That's not the woodshed. In the Old Testament, the wilderness is a place of protection and devotion and focus. So God, and I will speak tenderly to her, he says. God's solution to unfaithfulness, to cheating on him, is not to yell and rant and to really let him have it. It's affection, even romance. Boys and girls, I have some friends in a different city. And the husband is a soldier, and his wife is a teacher, and they have this really funny way of reminding each other how much they love each other. You want want to hear it? You want me to tell you what it is? Here's what they say to each other. They look each other in the eye, and they say, no one's getting out of this marriage alive. Which is a great twist on till death do us part, right? I love how they said that. And that's sort of what God's saying here, boys and girls. Let's, let's grab your verse 14. Here's what he says. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love her anyway. Baal tempted her away, so I'm going to love her back. I'll take her to our favorite spot. I will remind her of my love for her. See, God is a spouse who refuses to stop loving He answers our looking for love in all the wrong places with a taste of the thick love our hearts desperately desire. See, in a world full of cancel culture and trigger warnings where our performance is absolutely the key to acceptance, Christianity holds that no, our peace and security rests in the tenacity of God's love for us, not the depths of our performance for Him. Don't you want to rest from performing? Then rest in God's love. Man, if you struggle with shame or insecurity in your Christian life, it's probably because you're looking to your religious performance rather than God's faithfulness and love as the basis of your hope. Instead of looking to your efforts, look at how God pours out His heart in love in this text to win back an unfaithful people who do not love Him well. We don't really get the tenacity of this love. This is the kind of love that loves the unlovely. I mean, everybody looks at the little puppy, oh, it's so precious. That's easy. But let the weight of this metaphor sink into your heart. It is one thing, isn't it, to love a pure, fresh, attractive young bride. It is quite another matter to love, to really love a beat up, used up, ragged old cheating prostitute. And God says he does, because that's who we are. That's the thick love of a broken humanity that seeks love in all the wrong places. We need this love. Our neighbors desperately need this love. Has anybody ever heard of imposter syndrome? This is class participation. Anybody heard of imposter syndrome? Hey, more people than the outside service. Excellent, good. So imposter syndrome is, quote, people who believe they are not intelligent, capable, or creative despite evidence of high achievement. Last September, the New York Times ran a a huge article about this, this phenomenon called imposter syndrome, and they pick out one industry that seems to be very high on achievement and high on salary, tech workers. 
Turns out 58% of tech workers say they feel imposter syndrome. They're successful, they're accomplished, they're promoted, they're well-paved, and yet they feel like it's all luck, not skill. They don't feel worthy, they feel like imposters, and they live in fear that their boss is going to find out that they don't know what they're doing. See, it's not just you, we're all phonies inside. See, and here's the power of this image from Hosea. Instead of feeling like an imposter, God's tenacious love proves our worth. Because he says, it's not because of your performance, it's in spite of your performance that I love you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you like that? Because there's this insidious tendency in church world. Many, and many of you probably default to this tendency that God is aloof, He's austere, and he's kind of mean. And if it weren't for the constant nagging of gentle, mild Jesus, that this God would just crush us. That's not the gospel, and that is not Christianity. Look at how this mean Old Testament God reveals himself as such a gracious, overflowing lover in Hosea. Let this picture from Hosea of God's wild, thick love just cast that out of your mind. Hosea shows us a God who loves even when not loved in return. A God who takes away distractions so we can experience his love. And then in verse 15, he returns those blessings he took away, but he loads them up with hope. That's the glorious, tenacious love of God. Again, boys and girls, I want to make sure you're tracking with Pastor Sean. Let's look at verse 15 of your translation together, boys and girls. Near the bottom of your page, we got it. Says this, says, then I'll give her back the stuff she likes, and I'll remind her of how much we used to love each other. Then, like when we were first married, she'll be hopeful in my love. Boys and girls, is it better to wake up every day afraid? You have no idea what's going to happen, and you're kind of scared about what is going to happen? Or is it better to wake up so happy, hopeful? It's going to be a great day, and you just know it. I want the second one. I hope you do too. And that's what God says he offers his people in his love, that he loves us so much that his love overwhelms us with hope. What if that wasn't just preacher talk, but actually true? Whatever issues or trauma you have from your past that make you think of God as an aloof taskmaster, let these images from Hosea give you a different view. Which is right where this text ends in verse 16. Okay, got to do a quick little Hebrew lesson with you. Okay, the word Baal is a name, Baal, but it's also a word that means master. And so the translators have to decide, is this talking about the name Baal or the word master? And I disagree with how the ESV did it. I think that, that God tells his people here, not my Baal, but my master. So I think he says here in verse 16, you will no longer call me my master this taskmaster aloof mentality. I'm going to cast that away from you. You're actually going to see me as a loving, doting spouse. See, Christian or not, what comes to your mind when I say the word God? What do you think about God? Is he always angry? Easy to set off? Uninterested? Distant? I mean, so many of us default to that view of God, but that's someone you placate, isn't it? That's someone you perform for. That's not someone you rest in. If the Bible is true, places like Hosea show us the Creator wants us to see Him as a doting spouse, not as a strict boss. 
So based on this Hosea passage and many others, Sycamore, we are going to be rooted in God's love, a passionate, tenacious love that comes after us and loves us more even than we love ourselves. A love that's not ignorant of our faults, not ignorant of our failures, and yet a love that gushes all over us. That's a pretty big claim. How can I make such a claim? Well, let's go back to the text. Look with me at verse 10, if you would. Verse 10 says, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Now we can get all huffy about God shaming his people, or we could see the more profound truth in those four little words, out of my hand. Remember, this is a very common ceremony where you transfer shame to another. You strip them down naked and you abandon them in the naked public square, literally, so they are shamed and you are free from shame. But both Hosea and God mess it up. Hosea holds on to his wife's hand during the process and God says, here, when I do it, no one's going to take you out of my hand. He does it wrong. He no longer is completely free from the shame. He's taking the shame on himself. God holds on to his beloved. He is shamed right along with them. See, here in Hosea, we get a whiff, an appetizer of the gospel that is to come, where in the supreme act of love, God himself became human in the person of Jesus Christ. He let himself be stripped naked and shamed on the cross to set us free in his love. You see, in Jesus, we see that God doesn't protect himself by shaming his people. God protects his people by absorbing our shame. So as we are prone to walk around in imposter syndrome, thinking we're unworthy of love, in the gospel, we see that we're so valued, we're so loved that Jesus chose to suffer and die for us, validating our worth and taking away our shame. For those of you still investigating Christianity, maybe the neighbors you're in, you're in conversation with, I know this text today is, is bothersome. I get it. Our culture says that independence, freedom are the highest goods. And it makes us a very self-absorbed people. I mean, again, think of trigger warnings and how quick we are to take offense. That comes from a self-absorbed people. But real love can't thrive in such self-absorption. You can't do it. See, in real love, like a healthy marriage, we sacrifice independence to gain freedom. Freedom from loneliness, freedom from celibacy, etc. But we've given up voluntarily independence to get that. And that's what God offers us in the gospel. For those of you, again, if you're investigating Christianity, I know you have this view and this vision of why can't we just get along? Why can't we just love each other, right? Love is all you need. Imagine if we could just do that. And it sounds great, and I agree with you, but you don't have the resources to get there, but the gospel does. Because what God offers in the gospel is that when we give ourselves up to God, we gain a deeper freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from insecurity, freedom from shame, That's the power of God's love. And I would just give you as an example, look at Jesus Christ, who was anchored in God's love. And in that love, what did Jesus do? He had the strength to turn the other cheek, to bless when he was cursed, to forgive when mocked, and to love others deeply and unconditionally. Deep down, Christian or not, we all want to be like Jesus. And the gospel gives you the resources to do it. Because here's the crazy thing. In the gospel, 
we don't just get the benefits of Jesus, we get Jesus himself. In the gospel, we don't get Jesus into us, we get into Jesus. And so what's true of him is true of us. And empowered by the gospel, having given up some independence to become a follower of Jesus, we have the freedom to love as he loved. And that can change the world because it changes people. Can whatever it is you're basing your life on give you that promise? Because the gospel can. So when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, he sets you free and then he drenches you in love so you can thrive. There's nothing in our culture that can come close to making that promise. If you want a better world, if your non-Christian neighbors long for a better world, they should want the gospel to be true. Because it's anchored in God's love. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this picture of your love. And Lord, it's, it's so overwhelming that we want to reject it. It's so, it's, so, it's so ridiculously kind that we just, our skepticism says it can't be true. Lord, would you overwhelm us again in your love? Would you show us the reality of how deep your love is for us? And Father, we ask that as Jesus Christ has been portrayed as crucified for sin and raised for our salvation, that as he himself said, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Would you do that even now? In these very moments, Father, will you build your kingdom and lead those of us who know you into a deeper walk with Christ and those who do not into a confession of faith in him. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.